Well, good morning, everybody, and uh, a chilly, windy morning here in the Cape. Uh, but another beautiful Sunday where we can gather around God's Word and encourage, be encouraged by His Word through the working of the Spirit uh, in our lives. And so I pray that this morning would once again be a great encouragement from the book of Romans. We're, about, we're journeying our way through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles, don't you want to open to Romans chapter 3? Uh, so Romans chapter 3, we'll be looking at the first 20 verses of Romans chapter 3. And so we're about to end our journey from chapter 1. We've been on a journey from chapter 1 through to chapter 3, verse 9, where Paul has been on a journey to show us how every single human being is subject to the judgment of God because of his or her sinfulness. And so in chapter 1, we, we saw Paul addressing the unbelieving pagan world. He then changes his attention or focuses his attention in chapter 2, the first part, uh, to the critical um, moralist or the good person, the person who thinks that they're good enough for God. And in the second half of chapter 2, he then uh, hones in even more and turns his attention to the self-righteous Jewish person who would have been sitting in the Roman church listening to Paul uh, as this letter was read out to the church. And so last week we saw the Apostle Paul uh, basically addressing those who would consider themselves Jewish, those who would consider themselves uh, the chosen people of God, and he addresses the two cornerstones of Jewish faith, the law and circumcision. And Paul's conclusion around the moralist, the self-righteous Jew, the unbelieving pagan world is uh, all these things, everything we do, all our attempts to reach God, to know God, are totally meaningless if the human heart is not right with him, if the human heart is not changed. So in chapter 2, verse 29, Paul concludes with these verses, a man or a woman is not a Jew if he's only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. And so all our traditions, practices, deeds are useless, unless our heart is set right with God. Unless, of course, all these things flow from a living relationship with God. And so today, chapter 3, Paul kind of reaches his conclusion about sinfulness and brokenness of humanity. So for us, it's good news because it's like really the ending of the bad news and the start of the teaching on the good news. So Paul's been loading us with the bad news, letting us understand our situation before God as sinful human beings. But uh, the answer is coming. So hold on, folk. Next week, the answer is coming to the problem of sin. But just before Paul makes his conclusions, in verses 1 to 8 of chapter 3, it's almost as if the Apostle Paul is having a conversation with someone who's been listening to him the whole way through these three chapters and is now objecting to what he has taught with regards to sin. So these first eight verses, Paul was almost answering questions of an imaginary hearer who's saying, whoa, 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 Paul, before you go on, before you reach your conclusion, I've got some questions. And so Paul responds to these possible, possible sort of objections and criticisms, questions on his teaching on sin. And we want to explore these uh, three objections, these three questions that are raised and then jump straight into the conclusion. But before we do it, let, let us pray together. Uh, so Father, we thank you and we praise you that we can come to your word today. Thank you that your word is true. Thank you that your word speaks life. And I pray that you would bring the conviction necessary in our hearts this morning to understand uh, just how sinful we are before you and that we would, Lord, 
respond not with, uh, with condemnation and judgment on ourselves, but respond by running to the cross, to Jesus Christ and the grace and the mercy that we find in Him alone. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So turn with me to chapter 3, and we're going to start reading at verse 1, Romans chapter 3, verse 1. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? What value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they've been entrusted with the very words of God. But what if some do not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our righteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm only using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how would God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and some claim that we have said, let us do evil that good may result, while their condemnation is deserved. So what shall we truly then conclude? Are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They together have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So that's our text for today. In our world today, though, uh, as we reflect on this text, our world today is built on success and achievement. We are told that if you want to be someone, uh, if you want to be important, successful, a person of influence, so-called influencer today, you have to be the best, you have to be the richest, and you have to be the most successful. We reward people for doing good things and we punish for those who make mistakes. We celebrate people who have the top results at school, we, who get the highest achievement, who are the most talented, and we ignore those who are average and underachieve. The best, the strongest, the richest become our heroes and our idols, and even we want to be like them. And even as we look at religion across our world, the different religions across our world, 90%, in fact, 100% of them are built on doing, doing, praying more, doing more, worshipping more. In fact, they are built on the same premise as the world, all built on good deeds, achievements, and successes. If you just do enough, we, many religions tell us you will reach heaven. Meditate more, you'll reach heaven. Be good enough, you'll reach heaven. Be, uh, show good karma, you'll reach nirvana. You will be accepted by God based on what you do and what you contribute. And it's no wonder that in our achievement, success-driven world, that one of the most difficult things to admit, one of the most difficult things to tell our children, one of those most difficult things we have to come to terms with is that we failed or we just haven't made it. 
And Paul's teaching over the last three weeks would have been very difficult to hear and even understand. See, there's no one righteous, Paul says, not even one of us is good enough for God and our achievements mean absolutely nothing to him. And so it would come as a shock to many to be told that when it comes to God, we have failed and we all fall short of his glory. And even today in our world, with the latest so-called Equality Act that has been passed in the USA, it's almost become illegal to tell someone that they are a sinner living in sin. It's been considered hate speech. And I'm sure, pretty sure that the first three chapters of Romans in our world today is regarded as hate speech. Because it's hard to hear the truth. It's a hard truth to hear that there's nothing we can do to earn or inherit our salvation. That we are not good enough in ourselves under God's judgment. And as Paul comes to his conclusion from verse 9 to 20 about the sinfulness of human beings in our state before God, he answers three questions that the audience he thinks as they're listening would have raised about what has already been taught. So question one, did you see it in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 3? Question one. Paul, what's the value then in belonging to the people of God? Question number one. Paul, what value is there if we are all sinners under God's judgment? What value is there in belonging to the people of God? And your Jewish audience particularly would have been asking this question. See that in verse 1 and 2. What advantage then is there being, in a, Jew, being a Jew? Or what value then, Paul, is there in circumcision in light of your teaching? What value has there been in being Jewish and what value does our history have, the law and the covenants, Paul, if we are to face God's just judgment like the rest of the world anyway? Why did God then choose Israel as his treasured possession if they would be judged like everybody else anyway? What is the value of our story, Paul? And you see Paul's response to this question. Paul says there is huge value. But it's a different kind of value. It's not a value built on being successful or accepted. The value of being part of God's chosen people does not lie in our ethnicity or our chosenness, but rather in the responsibility that comes with it. See, the nation Israel were to be the light to the nations. They were supposed to be an example uh, to the nations, the conduit of God's grace and mercy to the world. You see that in verse 2, Paul says, what advantage? Well, there's much in every way. First of all, they've been entrusted with the very words of God. You've been entrusted with God's word, nation Israel. So the entire Old Testament in Revelation was God, from God was entrusted to Israel's care and was an incredible privilege and responsibility. They were the people of God uh, that God led, spoke to, provided for. Their history is filled with the movement and the visible acts of God. And out of all the nations, he chose to reveal his word to them. And they had first-hand experience of God moving in their history as a nation. They were instruments and channels of God's work to work out his salvation plan for the world. And Paul describes Israel in Romans chapter 9 verse 4 in a little bit more detail. But listen to Romans chapter 9 verse 4. Speaking of Israel, he says, Theirs is the adoption of sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Of course there's value in belonging to the people of God with the history of God at work. And yet sadly, all the history... And value is lost without a heart change. Without a heart change, the story, the value of this history 
absolutely comes to naught unless a heart change happens through the grace and the Spirit of God. And isn't that true what we saw in the history of Israel? As glorious as it may be from God's side time and time again, we see the nation simply rejecting God, even asking for a king like the nations. See, they failed to be the light to the nations. They failed to be the great testimony of God's glory and God's mercy and grace extended to the world. And John chapter 1 verse 11, John begins his gospel uh, just defining this, this lack of understanding of, of what they had in the history and, and the movement of God. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. You see, every advantage and privilege and value was lost because of sin. The nation faces the same judgment now as the world because their hearts have not been changed by the gospel. And if your heart is not changed by the gospel, Jewish believer in the Roman church, then you are under the same judgment as the world. You see, the problem is not the history. The history is not devalued. There's, there's incredible value in, in, in the history of Israel, the story of God. But what does it do? Well, it reveals exactly what Paul has been teaching in these first three chapters. That even with all those privileges and history and the movement of God, the human heart is deeply tainted by sin. And so we today at home, you today at home listening to this message might be asking, well, what, the same, similar question in the, in the sense of what advantage there is there then in being raised in a Christian home in the body of Christ? It's the same question. Well, what, what advantage is there to being part of the nation Israel, a Jew? What advantage is there to being a Christian and being raised in a Christian environment in a Christian home? Because I think many parents are wrestling with this. Do we raise our children up aware of God in a Christian home? Or is that going to push them away from God? Well, I think Paul's answer to, you, to the Christian parent would be being part of a new covenant community, being part of the church, getting confirmed and baptized and going to youth and all these things that we do growing up in Sunday school. Paul would say there is value much in every way. You see, as we raise our children in a Christian home as part of the church, they are exposed to the gospel. They are seeing it in action. They are understanding the responsibility of being a chosen member of the church and, and the body of Christ, belonging to Jesus, uh, people belonging to God and entrusted with His Word. You see, the exposure within the Christian home creates the environment to interact around God and with God. Children raised in a Christian home are exposed to the gospel all the time. The opportunities for God to work are so much greater. I mean, the practical uh, physical example of this, for example, is, uh, you know, when, when you enter a competition, the more tickets you buy, the greater the chance of winning, the greater the chance of winning the prize. Or the closer you get to that pop star or that sporting hero, the more chance you have of getting his signature. And I believe the same principle applies to those raised in a Christian home. You are exposed more and more to God, the gospel, the working of the gospel. You know, Zacchaeus came out of the crowd, didn't he? He came out of the crowd and he climbed into the tree and he, he made, positioned himself where he could see Jesus clearly. And of course, uh, Jesus then speaks directly to him. You see, just as being part of the church, uh, however, being part of the church, being part of the nation, Israel, Paul reminds us, although there's greater exp exposure and there's more, more uh, activity of God and visible activity of God in our lives and we are surrounded by the truth, just being part of a Christian home, just being part of a nation, Israel, just being Jewish doesn't guarantee salvation. 
we need to understand that it doesn't guarantee salvation. Although there's great advantages, a heart change is still needed. And doesn't Jesus point to us in Matthew chapter 7 where he says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, in your name drive out demons and perform many, 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 lots of miracles? Then I will plainly say to them, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Matthew 7, verse 22 to 23. So just being part of the nation Israel, just growing up the church does not guarantee salvation. But there is great value because it exposes us to God and the working of God in our lives and in history. So that's the answer to the question, what value is there in belonging to the people of God? Paul says there's incredible value. There's much value. But a heart change is still necessary. Because of sin, that challenges the glorious working of God in our lives. And did you see that it flows into the next question, question number two. So the second question that's asked is, does our sinfulness, our brokenness mean that God is unfaithful to his promises? So does our sinfulness, does our, 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 the, the things we do wrong, think wrong, say wrong, do they point to God being unfaithful to his promise to save? You see that in verse 3? What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Paul's answer verse 4, not at all. Let God be true and every man and woman a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. See, does the unfaithfulness of Israel not nullify the very promises of God to them as a nation? Uh, the unfaithfulness in many ways, the, the person who's asking this question says, proves that God, to, uh, the, the unfaithfulness proves that God is unfaithful and unable to keep his promises. So for some looking in, they would say, well, just... God can't even save Israel. Who can he save? He's, he's obviously not been faithful to his promise to them as a nation. Paul says, no, not at all. You're seeing it wrong. You're getting it wrong. Your understanding is wrong of this issue. God's faithfulness is not brought into question through Israel's lack of faith. So God's faithfulness is not brought into question by our sinfulness. But in fact, his word is proved to be true and his judgment is proved to be right and justified because of our sinfulness. So our sinfulness doesn't declare that God is unfaithful to his promise, not at all. In fact, our sinfulness proves his very words and proves that his judgments are justified. So even before Israel had entered the promised land, even before anything had happened in in Deuteronomy chapter 31 it's interesting that God already foretells or predicts their rebellion before they've even gone into the promised land and settled before all the history unfolds God has said God foretells their rebellion he even teaches them a song about their brokenness and their hearts that will rebel against him and listen to these words in Deuteronomy 31 verse 16 that Moses is to go and say to the nation the song he is to teach them Verse 16 of Deuteronomy 31. He see, his words are true. God knows what lives in the human heart. The Lord said to Moses, You're going to rest with your fathers, and these people will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land they are entering. They will forsake me and break the covenant I made with them. Verse 17 of Deuteronomy 31. On that day I will become angry with them and forsake them. I will hide my face from them, and they will be destroyed. 
Many disasters and difficulties will come upon them. And on that day they will ask, have not these disasters come upon us because God is not with us? See, the very thing that that God is being accused of in Romans chapter 3, God's faithfulness, God's unfaithful. But listen to verse 18, I will certainly hide my face on that day because of all their wickedness in turning to other gods. Now write down for yourselves this song and teach it to Israelites and have them sing it so that they may be a witness for me against themselves. They may be a witness for me against themselves. Verse 20, when I brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, the land I promised on oath to their forefathers, and when they eat their full and thrive, they will turn to other gods and worship them, rejecting me and breaking my covenant. And when many disasters and difficulties come upon them, this song will testify against them, because it will not be forgotten by their descendants. I know that they are disposed to do I know what they are disposed to do even before I bring them into the land. I promised them to on oath. So Moses wrote down the song that day and taught it to the Israelites. Can you imagine singing that song? We're going to rebel against God. Hallelujah. We're going to be prostituting ourselves with other gods. Can you imagine singing that song as a testimony against yourself? Well, folk, your hearts do sing that song every single day in our sinfulness and brokenness as a testimony against ourselves and against our own human rebellion. See, this, the, our sinfulness does not reflect on the faithfulness of God. God knows what is in the heart of mankind. He knew the nation would rebel against Him time and time again. He knew there would come a time where He Himself would have to intervene and step in to save. The sinfulness of people does not reveal the unfaithfulness of God. In fact, it shows He is sovereign and in control even of our brokenness. Our sinfulness reveals God's faithfulness in the gospel. Faithfulness in love and salvation. God is faithful in love and salvation, but God is also faithful in his judgment. You see, that's part of his character, isn't it? God's judgment is a sign of his faithfulness. And how can I say that? Well, Exodus 34, verse 5 to 8. Remember where God, where Moses asked to see God and God says, okay, he puts him in a cleft of a rock and he passes past him and he reveals his name. He declares his name, his character. Well, listen to these words from Exodus 34 verses 5 to 8. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Hallelujah. Yes, Jesus. That's what we say. Yes, God. The love of God, the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, the mercy of God, uh, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. But yet we forget the next verse, the next part of verse 7. Yet, yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. See, folks, sin is going to be punished. God's true character, loving, gracious, kind, merciful, but yet also the righteous judge. He's promised to forgive, to rescue, to save, but he's also promised that the justice will be done. Faithful to himself, God is and faithful to his promise. And that's why Paul in verse 4 of Romans can quote David as he reflects on human sinfulness. And he quotes Psalm 51 verse 4. Do you see that in verse 4 of Romans? 
Not at all. So God's faithfulness is not brought into question at all. Let God be true and every man a liar. Every man and woman a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Those are the words of David from Psalm 51 verse 4. And if you reflect on Psalm 51 verse 4, David says, Against you only and you only, Lord, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. You see what David is saying? King David is saying, God, you are right to judge me for my sin. You are proved right in my sinfulness. And so the Apostle Paul, in answer to the question, uh, does our sinful mean, sinfulness mean that God is unfaithful to His promises? Not at all. God is just in His judgment. God is righteous in His judgment. God has every right to judge a sinful, broken world. And doesn't the same question arise in the minds of many believing parents or many, many believers today? You know, parents whose children were baptized, were raised in the Christian home. You did everything right as a parent. Yet your children are still living far away from God. Does that mean God is unfaithful to save, unfaithful to His promises? Not at all. Not at all. It's not a reflection on your ability to raise children in a Christian home or as believers. It's not a reflection on you as a parent. It's not a reflection on the faithfulness of God. Not at all. All it does is proves what Paul has been saying in Romans chapter 1 to 3, that the human heart is sinful above all things. You see, as we look at the sinfulness of the world around us, don't we see these first three chapters of Romans being proved so true? And Paul's conclusion about humankind is absolutely perfectly true. We are all sinners in need of saving. We are all sinners in need of saving from ourselves, our own good works, our own attempts to be righteous, our own understanding of what it means to be good enough for God. We need to be saved from that. See, every time we sin and fall short of the glory of God, we prove, like David, God's word to be true. We prove his judgment on his son Jesus Christ on the cross to be justified. Jesus' death and shedding of blood was justified because we are sinful time and time again. God is just in his judgment on the human race. And that flows sort of into the third question, doesn't it? So question number three, but if our, if our sinfulness ultimately, Paul, as you say, so if our sinfulness reveals God's glory, grace and mercy, so if our sinfulness ultimately brings glory to God in his salvation, in saving us, what right does he then have to judge us for our sin? Can you hear the logic behind that? So, well, okay, Paul, granted, if, 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 if God's grace and personal character and faithfulness is revealed through our sinfulness, then how can God possibly judge us? Because in the end, we're serving His glory and His name. Do you see that in verse, verse 5 to 6? But if our righteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing His wrath on us? Now, as Paul says, I'm just using the human argument. Verse 6, certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases His glory, well then why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are slanderously being reported as saying, as some claim that we say, 
Let us do evil that good may result. Well, then condemnation is deserved. You see, what, what the person, then, that, uh, the objection, the question that's being raised in Paul's mind is if our unrighteousness reveals God's grace and mercy to the world, then God's got no right to judge us because we've brought glory to his name. See, the, the rationale is the more sinful we are, the more glorious the gospel is. My unfaithfulness brings glory to God. The end justifies the means. Let us do evil that good might result. So, so let us be really bad. Let's be, be, be like sinful so that God's glory is revealed. Our righteousness benefits God. My sin is to his advantage. So how can he possibly judge me for it? Because we are bringing glory to him anyway. God's got no right to judge me if I was created this way. You can hear the words of our world, don't you? If my falsehood enhances truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned? as a sinner and Paul is totally embarrassed with the stupidity of this argument isn't he Paul is totally embarrassed by this why he says in verse 5 I'm simply using a human argument see there's no rationale behind it there's no there's no wisdom in this argument it's pure foolishness one of the screenwriters for the famous series Star Trek said the following about God we must question the story logic of having an all-knowing all-powerful God who creates faulty humans and then blames them for his own mistakes. Can you hear that, 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 that comment or this question that's arising in these verses 5 to 6? Is even in our world today. How can God blame me or hold me accountable if he created me this way? You see, folks, this, this logic is, is flawed. How often don't we actually see this in churches where we get the worst possible sinner to, you know, who's been rescued out of Satanism and, 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 and was so bad. We get them on our stages, on our platforms. They share their story and they spend 40 minutes talking about how bad they were, how terrible they were. And everybody in the church goes, whoa, they were so bad. And then you spend the last 10 minutes on, but God saved me, God rescued me and, and amen. See, how often don't we almost take pride in our sinfulness, take pride in how bad we are, boast about our brokenness in our world today and, 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 and declare that, oh, it's showing how great God is. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Paul says, no, 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 this is not the case. I had a non-Christian friend who once told me uh, when I shared the gospel with him, he said, man, I'm working on my before Christ part of my testimony. Maybe one day when I'm older, I might commit myself to him. So I'm working on my before Christ days to, to create such a bad story that God's rescue of me looks glorious. See, folk, we laugh at this kind of argument, but actually it's so prevalent in our world today, isn't it? And Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 1 to 3, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? See, Paul, what Paul is saying in answer to this question is just because we're forgiven, it's not permission to live as we please. The end doesn't justify the means. We don't live as sinful lives as possible so that God may be glorified. No, God detests sin. God hates sin. Sin nailed his son to the cross and cost him his life. 
What do we do in light of the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God? We don't, the grace of God is not there to enable us to sin. Oh, I'm already forgiven past, present, future. So I can live as I want. Keep on sinning as I want because I'm already forgiven. And don't we see that mindset in the minds of so many Christians. The hearts of so many Christians today. Living making a mockery of God's grace. Living, making a mockery of God's grace. And so if you are living in intentional, ongoing sinfulness, it's not bringing any glory to God. It's not revealing how great His mercy and His grace is. No, it's simply revealing a heart that is broken, sinful, and doesn't understand the consequences of sin. You see, when we live lives that say, let us do evil, that good may result. Well, Paul has got one thing and one thing only to, to say to us. When we live lives where we are hypocritical, we, we, we declare our love for Jesus, but yet we intentionally, continually live in sin. Live in sexual sin. We, we even claim sexual sin to be our identity, as chapter 1 says. And we continue in that and think that somehow it's okay for God. You see, when we continue to live in sin intentionally, ongoing because we've been forgiven grace doesn't enable sin grace should bring us to repentance and paul says one thing to the person living in sin who thinks that they can just carry on sinning and living as they please he says their condemnation is deserved their condemnation is deserved see folk our sinfulness does not remove any value from belonging to god's people Our sinfulness does not mean that God is unfaithful to his promises in any way. And our sinfulness in no way brings glory to God. You see, there is only one conclusion that we can reach about sin. There's only one conclusion that we can reach about brokenness. And that's the conclusion that we find from verses 9 through to 20 that Paul brings us to. He's answered his critics. He's he's listened to the questions. He's answered the questions. He said they're absolute foolishness. Now here is the conclusion. And Paul's conclusion is what we call pearl stringing. It's a typical method used by a rabbi. A rabbi is when they teach, would take various Old Testament scriptures and link them together, almost like putting pearls on a necklace. Different truths from different places to prove or to make a statement or to bring across a teaching. And that's exactly what Paul does in verses 9 through to verse 18. He pearl strings a whole lot of Old Testament passages. So he quotes a whole lot of Old Testament verses. He puts them like pearls on a necklace so that we can reach the same conclusion. He shows from Scripture the only conclusion we can reach about our sinfulness and our brokenness and he says in verse 9 what then shall we conclude do we have any advantage not at all if we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles all people are under the power of sin as it is written and here are the pearls that he begins to put on the necklace there is no one righteous not even one none of us there is no one who understands There is no one who seeks God. See, we in our natural state, we won't seek God. We don't understand. 
Verse 12, all have turned away. Just like Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden, so we have rebelled against God. We've turned away. They've become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. See, folk, our hearts have rebelled, turned away from God. And notice our words are affected by sin. So our hearts are affected by sin. Our words affected by sin, verse 13. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. See how our words are so deeply affected by sin. What we say, how we boast, our pride, the words that cut, the words that break down, the words that bully, the words that that are are aimed at somebody uh, to, to spite and to hurt. It's like the poison of vipers on our lips. Our tongues lie. See, folk, we we see our words, our mouths are deeply affected by the sinfulness in our hearts. But not only our words, also our actions. Do you see that in verse 15? Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Isn't that a beautiful description of a world today? Our hearts have turned away from God. Our words are cutting, hurtful, deceitful, arrogant. And what do we do? we swift to hurt each other, swift to climb into each other. We're swift to break each other down. Our actions mark the fact that our, our hearts are deeply affected by sin. There is no fear of God in the world today. Our eyes, we see people turning away from God, people making a mockery of God. There's no reverence, no respect anymore for God. See, the arrogance of humankind has overtaken us. And we see it all around us. We even celebrate it. We even call it Christian. Our pulpits are full of men and women who boast in their abilities, their talents, their giftings. Boast in their anointing. Boast in how wonderful they are connected to God. uh, And yet their, 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 their teaching is filled with poison that leads to destruction. We see it all around us. See what Paul, uh, this little necklace that Paul beads together with these verses is around each one of our necks. We all wear this necklace. We all wear these pearls. You see from the Old Testament, Paul takes these verses from Psalms and he puts them together to paint a picture of the brokenness, the hopelessness of humankind in their own state, in their natural state. You see, it's very different from the message we receive from the motivational speakers today, don't we? My best life now. You are the best you can be. Be the most wonderful you. You are everything. I am powerful. I am wonderful. I am independent. I am great. My greatness lies within me. See, that's the world's message. Paul says, no, 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 no. There is no one righteous, not even one. You see why this text is so unpopular? Why this would be considered hate speech when we teach our children this uh, we are accused of breaking them down uh, accused of destroying their self-esteem but folk can i be honest with you the starting point to understanding our salvation begins right here in these verses when we understand how broken we are when we understand the sinfulness of our hearts that affects every area of life, that is when we discover our need for rescue. 
That is when we discover how hopelessly and helplessly we are in need of God to move towards us. And I wonder this morning, as you sit listening to this message, contemplating your life, are you aware of your deep sinfulness and brokenness? Are you aware? Does this verse, do you see these verses describing you? Or are you always just thinking of somebody else that they describe? Because Paul is writing these words for you. And folk, the point of repentance comes when we realize how broken we are, how sinful we are. Yet we don't live in condemnation because Paul says in chapter 8, a little bit later on, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, the answer to our sinfulness, our brokenness, is not despair. The answer to your sinfulness and your messed upness is not to get depressed and to become self-condemning. That's not the answer. See, conviction must never lead to condemnation. Conviction must lead you to the cross. To throw yourself on the grace and the mercy of God. To throw yourself on the love of God. To stand on what He has done for us, not what I do for myself. See, the answer that is coming. The answer that is coming to the problem of your heart, your sinfulness, your brokenness. Is a glorious answer that says, you don't have to do anything. God has done it for you. And he calls you to simply believe in him, in Jesus Christ. He calls on you to repent, to acknowledge, to admit that you are a sinner. To reach the point of saying, God, I cannot do it on my own, in my own strength. I need you. I need the work of the Spirit. I need the work of the cross. But we need to reach this place, this conclusion. Without all the excuses like we've seen before in the verses, trying to come up with fine-sounding arguments to explain away our sinfulness. No, folk, we need to come to a place of raw, honest repentance. Recognizing our need for Jesus. And when we do, the next couple of chapters become all the more glorious. See, in verse 19, Paul says, Now that we know whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, So the Jews, even the Jews, God's own people, they're under the law. And if they are standing judged by the law, how much more the world around them? So that every mouth may be silenced. Every mouth silenced. And the whole world held accountable to one God and one God alone. Held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works or works of the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of our sin. See, folks, through the law, through God's word, through reading these three chapters, hopefully you have become conscious of your sin. And we are silenced before God. We are accountable to God for our words, our actions, and our sinful hearts. But the great news is coming. The great news is coming. And from next week, we will pick up the righteousness from God that is revealed, which will lead us into Easter, the wonderful moment of reflecting on how God intervenes to save us from ourselves, to rescue us, and to rescue us from His own righteous judgment. But we need to realize the seriousness and the gravity of our sin, the complete depravity of mankind. Folk, let us not entertain sin. Let us not allow sin to be 
uh, become normal in our lives, to become something that we are comfortable with. It's like the story of a young man who finds a leopard cub and feels sorry for it. It's such a cute little cub that, that he takes it home and he raises it as his own. He feeds it. He looks after it. He, he, he nourishes it. He cares for it. He loves it with everything. And the leopard grows up as part of the family in their home. But then one night, its instincts kick in and he rips the family to par- apart. He eats and devours the brothers and sisters. You see, the young man forgot that in that little leopard that was so cute and cuddly as a cub lies the, the heart of a leopard, a hunter, a wild animal. Folk, don't tolerate even the smallest sin in your life this morning because sin is destructive. And James tells us when temptation gives birth to sin and sin grows in our lives, it gives birth to death. From the smallest of sins, which we would say are small little sins, to the greatest of sins. Folk, let us not be raising a leopard in our own home. Let us not become, uh, become complacent with sin because it is destructive. There is no one righteous, not even one. May I ask that as we close that you contemplate and think about your life. And if there's sin that you need to confess, bring it to the Lord. Uh, if there's sin that is is consistently knocking at your door. Bring it to the Lord and ask Him in His strength and through His Spirit to bring true repentance, conviction this week. May He convict us. May He lead us to the cross where grace and mercy are found, where love and forgiveness is accessible. And if you are feeling convicted, take it to the cross. Because when Jesus hangs on the cross, and we'll discover that in the next few weeks, He says, It is finished. The job of rescuing you is done. The job of forgiving you for every single sin is done. The punishment you deserve, you deserve, righteously deserve for your sin, is taken upon Him. And His righteousness is given to us. And that is the glorious gospel. Conviction must never lead to condemnation. It must drive us to the cross of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you for these powerful words, these powerful answers from the Apostle Paul to all our objections. Oh God, may we read these words. May we see ourselves reflected in this little pearl necklace that Paul puts together for us in verses 10 to 18. And God, may we fall on our knees in repentance. May we repent. May we turn to you. And Lord, may we realize this morning our great and desperate need for the gospel. Thank you for your conviction. Thank you for the work of your spirit that is to convict us of sin, righteousness and judgment. And to turn our hearts to Jesus Christ. And may he do that right now. May he do that this week in our lives. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, folk, next week, great news, good news. We get on to the answer to the problem of human sin and brokenness. I hope you have a great week living in light of the gospel. God bless.